0: The Anesthesia Podcast. Hi, I'm Tanya Selak. I'm an anaesthetist from Australia. Welcome to everyone listening around the world, either via podcast or video broadcast. Today, we are discussing three papers from a special anaesthesia issue on sustainable healthcare and the anaesthetist. We have three incredibly impressive people here today who have made major contributions to protecting our planet and our authors on three of the papers in this very special issue. Unusually, for an anaesthesia journal, we have no anaesthetists on the panel. Instead, we have the great privilege of hearing perspectives from a climate scientist, a surgeon, and a pharmacist. Dame Julia Slingo, Miss Virginia Leder,
1: Ms. Alefia Chikira. Hello, I'm I'm uh, Julia Slingo. I'm a I've spent my career in meteorology, climate science, and in particular modeling the climate system to make predictions and projections of climate change. I've been a university professor, a research director, and I finished my career as chief scientist of the UK's meteorological office, uh, a hugely important role where I was in charge of 500 scientists working on everything from forecasting the weather a few hours ahead to uh, long-term
2: climate change. Hello everyone, and thank you for inviting me to talk today. Um, I'm Virginia Leder. I'm a PhD fellow at the NIHR Global Surgery Unit at the University of Birmingham. I'm actually a general surgery trainee uh, in Merseyside, um specializing in colorectal surgery.
3: Great. Yeah, I'm I'm actually a pharmacist by training. So I trained in Australia, um, but found myself in the UK around 95 and obviously met. A Brit and stayed, um, which which is great. My background's are mixed, um, so whilst I trained in, in clinical pharmacy, uh, I ended up working in global health for some time, sort of looking at health inequalities and health systems. So that's really my area of interest. Um, and I've I, I returned to clinical practice only seven years ago, um, and where my skills were sort of sort of utilised in sort of looking at health systems again. Um, you know, so uh, yeah, and this is how I've arrived. So I'm now with Scottish Government um, as the Head of Pharmaceutical Sustainability, working in their health infrastructure team.
0: Thank you so much, the three of you. Our, Our listeners will be totally impressed with the breadth of expertise the three of you bring. So thank you all so much for making time to speak with us. So let's start to talk about the papers that are in the issue. So let's start with you, Dame Julia, Um, I read your paper today and I think you've done a really wonderful job of trying to sort of explain to the layperson this idea of volatile anaesthesia, global warming potential, but what that actually means in the living, breathing climate. Um, Why do you think we've sort of held on to this relatively simple concept of GWP rather than sort of moving forward to the things about you know, radiative forcing?
1: Well, I mean, it's the first thing to say, it's it's simple. And uh, it's simple in that all it looks at is the ability of a greenhouse gas to trap uh, thermal infrared radiation uh, in our climate system. And we know carbon dioxide, of course, is the, the key gas that we worry about. And that's all it is. And when you just look at that, you see a number that's very large for anaesthetic gases, and particularly desferane, which is what we're really talking about today. But unfortunately, GWP was not designed for the purposes, for the uses that ha- it has been taken up um, in the, in the last, last decade or so. Across all sectors, actually, not just the health sector. It is a very theoretical metric. It tells you nothing about the complexity of the climate system. It's really only valid for gases that are long-lived, like carbon dioxide, which stays in the atmosphere for at least 100 years. And that's the reason why, in fact, we have climate change today, because carbon dioxide has been accumulating ever since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. So there are three issues for GWP when we look at Um, the question of does desflurane cause climate change because that's the fundamental and therefore should we remove it from practice the three issues are that actually GWP of course just compares two gases radiatively and it's not taking account of how much of the gas is in the atmosphere because it's the abundance of the gas that determines the radiative forcing or the energy imbalance That's exerted on the climate system, which causes it eventually to warm. And when you look at the abundance of rain in the atmosphere, it is absolutely minute. So, despite the fact that the GWP is two and a half thousand times stronger, bigger than carbon dioxide, there's only 0.37 parts per trillion in the atmosphere compared with 420 million parts per trillion of carbon dioxide. So that's the first point. There's very, very little of desflurane in the atmosphere. The second thing is that if you then go on and say, well, what's the radiative forcing of that 0.37 parts per trillion? You can go back and say, well, I'll take the, efficiency, the radiative efficiency of the gas, which is in the GWP metric, and multiply it by the amount of gas in the atmosphere and then you get a radiative forcing which is 0.0017 watts per meter squared, very very small, i would waterably small really, against 2.16 watts per meter squared for carbon dioxide. And for a climate scientist like me who knows about all the energy flows around the climate system you just say this is completely and utterly irrelevant. The other factor that leads us on, I think, then to the the next part of the the process is the lifetime of the gas. And the crucial thing about Desforain is its lifetime is short. And there's now been a huge amount of literature in the climate science community about that GWP is invalid for short-lived greenhouse gases like Desforain. And that you can create other metrics, but all of them compromise that climate complexity. Um, and one of the bas- one of the basic problems is the enor- enormous inertia of the climate system to respond to a forcing, in this case, radiative forcing. It takes decades for the system to respond to carbon dioxide because we have these oceans, this massive body of water, whose thermal inertia is huge. So climate change works on multi-decadal timescales, and desflurane is gone from the system in 14 years when you emit it. So you've got two things. You've got very small abundance, you've got a short lifetime, and everything about it within the complexity of the climate system makes it therefore vanishingly small and irrelevant. Um, and therefore, there's no case, I think, for Des Ferain, for the arguments that Des Ferain affects the climate and therefore should be banned. And the final step in this argument is, of course, that if you know the GWP, you can say, what's, what's the equivalent emission of carbon dioxide? And that assumes that GWP is valid for a short-lived climate forcer. And as I've said, that's not true. An alternative is something we call global temperature potential, which tries to take account of the thermal inertia of the climate system that I've talked about. And when you look at GTP, which is also quoted often alongside GWP, you will find that it's about 20% of the GWP. So in other words, we've overestimated the equivalent carbon dioxide from our desflurane emissions by at least 80%. And so every way you look at this problem, you see that actually there is no case to be made to ban desflurane on environmental grounds.
0: Thank you, Dame Julia. That's a really, I mean, it's complex science and certainly that's all explained um, more fully uh, in the paper. So we're told we should use tiva intravenous anesthesia, rather than desflurane for the climate. And I'm guessing you would argue that for the climate, that is not a valid reason.
1: That's correct. Um, that's because those arguments are based on this calculation of equivalence CO two emissions based on GWP, and as I've said, they're an overestimate by at least eighty percent. If you used, if you wanted to, wanted to use an alternative metric, you should at least use GTP which yes. would give you equivalent carbon footprint, which is 20% of what's in the uh, published estimates of the carbon footprint of Teva versus anaesthetic gases. And then I think you would find that actually Teva was not desirable as a replacement. It has its role, of course, in the in the different uh, technologies that anaesthetists can use um, mm-hmm. of their choice, but it's The climate change issue is not a reason to change to Tiva. The carbon footprint is probably, I haven't done the calculations because I don't have access to the data. My estimate is that you would find that the carbon footprint was higher from the waste associated with the production of plastics and the waste disposal is higher for Tiva than it is from the emissions of desflurane.
0: So it sounds like we've got more work to do in this area. And I think a lot of anaesthetists who are really passionate about the climate and have tried really hard to move things along, find mm. this message really challenging to hear. Um, but it's so important, isn't it, that we just keep our minds nice and open and just keep following that science. So let's move on to Virginia's paper. So you did this incredible... Um, paper where you tried to work out how could we get surgeons and surgical teams to have greener surgery. So really kind of at the beginning of its journey, can you tell us about the challenges of writing this article in terms of getting evidence to base green surgery initiatives
2: on? Yes, thank you. So as you said, we are really at the beginning of the journey uh, when we think about sustainability in surgery. It has become Like topical fields in the next, in the last few years. Uh, But looking at evidence to kind of put in the paper or inform the paper, it was quite hard the evidence is immature there is not enough out there so that is definitely that was definitely a challenge and also when we look at the studies that have been made because a lot has been published um, recently it mostly seemed to be from kind of single center enthusiasts so there is interventions that have been applied to one hospital but not necessarily those interventions that seem to work there will work in other centers or for example, most of the evidence comes from high income countries. So how do we, how can we generalize that to low income countries, which probably have a very different supply chain and way of operating in an operating theater. So it's very difficult to write a paper that has kind of advice on what surgical teams should do when the evidence is so, such a early stages. Um, so that was definitely kind of a complication for it. Um, also because all the studies report their findings in different ways. So there is no standardized reporting when we think about um benefit with regards to carbon impact for intervention. So everyone is looking at slightly different kind of boundaries for the intervention that they've implemented and it's everyone is looking at slightly different outcomes so how do we put them all together in a way that we can give advice that is um, valid and generalizable for um, other centers that want to go on this sustainability journey so that's that's definitely another challenge like the practicalities of how to advise um surgical team to implement the intervention within their own their own team, like how to act technically do it. And then one of another challenge is that the fact that we have seen centers implementing interventions, some of them have been successful. However, can these interventions be realistically be sustained through times? Because as you mentioned earlier, there is you know winter pressures, there is a uh, you know strikes there is so different complications and how can we actually maintain that intervention through time that that is definitely something that not a lot of studies can show so how how can we inform you know different surgical teams globally that they should do this and how can they do this for a prolonged period of time so so virginia what do you think is the key what are the key messages from your paper in terms of the interventions that we present, um, it's adopting those that are easily implementable by the frontline team. So reducing, for example, the amount of instruments um, in, the, in the surgical trays or uh, avoid opening all the kits straight away. So simple things that you know anyone can do that don't need a lot of stakeholder engagement that can be done straight away and can be done daily easily and that would have a great effect also engage with research so that is really the best way of getting that evidence that strong evidence that we need um engaging research project engaging collaborative projects because only that way we're going to get that strong kind of evidence that is required and also uh, i would say engage with the rest of the team because as you said you know Here we have such a variety, just today, such a variety of professionals. So engage with your colleagues, see what's going on in the rest of the hospital, just because it is, you know, it is really a team effort. We can't really do it alone. And for that reason, also try and, you know, upskill yourself, learn about carbon literacy, learn about behavioral change, because those are two aspects. Those are two kind of cross-cutting bits of knowledge that you can't really bring with you that will allow you to ensure that the intervention can be perhaps um, more sustainable, sustained through times and um, also brought forward and widened to the, uh, to the wider hospital environment rather than just within the operating theatres.
0: Great, great work. Is, and, you know, it is. It's all behave, It's all teams and it's all behaviour yeah. change, isn't it? It's, fast, it's just fast, quite sort of simple concepts but very difficult to achieve. Absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. So Alafia, I wonder if we could turn our attention to your paper now. Um, this nitrous oxide project is fascinating and so impactful. When I look at the the numbers that you've managed to achieve, um, I'm wondering how you got started with that. You're you're a pharmacist. You're asking anesthetists to to change the way they work. Uh, did you face any barriers? How did you get started? I'm really interested in the backstory.
3: Yeah, so um so what I what happened is I I joined um NHS Lothian as a, as their sort of um lead for um theaters and anesthetics um obviously the the main um the main concern is obviously can you save me some money right that's the that's the first question um, um you know like we need to save money and' that, that there's, there's a I mean this is the thing working in a public health system um sustainability isn't just environmental sustainability and it should not just carbon emissions is it so um, and we'll come back to the Tiva point. I, I kind of I, I agree, but for different reasons on the Tiva point, um, but all all I think all valid. Um, so so it's it's about sustainability across a number of dimensions, including managing risk including um fiscal uh, viability over a long period of time as well as um managing our environmental risks we we have very high emission in the in the, in the west at least um there are many health services that deliver very good health care for low emissions so i think there's a lot to learn across countries so i'm digressing a bit so you ask me a question i'll get back to it so uh, the irony is that i noticed um i was interested in sort of understanding their anesthetic footprint that seemed like the low-hanging fruit Although it really wasn't actually when I came to the nitrous oxide, I realized there was a problem, but the irony was it was the desflurane, the depreciation or the, you know, reduction of desflurane that draw my attention to saying, why is the nitrous oxide not decreasing? Um, And and then I started interviewing anesthetists. So this, I I sort of embedded into my dissertation. I was doing a master's in public health. And um, but, you know, I started interviewing and doing this, sort of the, that five-wide childlike questioning, and they were like, oh, I'm using a lot of it. And then when you actually sort of dig down, they were using teaspoons, right? So they were just they, they just kind of were just almost panicking about their use when there was no need to panic, you know? So, um, and it, it really boiled down to very narrow areas of clinical use, induction at pediatrics, which they run it for a couple of minutes, um, obs, OBS and gynae, you know, emergency cases, um, and maybe the odd colorectal case. It's um, so a very, very low use. You get some traditional anesthetists who just use it as their, their staple, but actually don't really need it and actually find they're using too many antiemetics when they're giving it, so actually have changed their practice because they found their patients are less sick if they give less nitrous. So this was all very interesting. So what I saw was a trend in nitrous oxide diminishing in use. Um, It was a drug that was really favored, you know, when we were using halothane. So I was asking all these questions. It was being very annoying. Um, And I I proposed a hypothesis in my dissertation, so which was probably outside the scope of my dissertation. But, you know, um, time is money. We've got to keep moving. And I was able to do a test of change. And at one site, we we were losing, um, actually, I reassessed it again. Um, we, We were losing basically all our nitrous oxide. We were losing all of it. So initially, sort of put the prediction at around 90%, but it was actually all of it. Um, so, um, so that was 792,000 litres, which isn't just emissions going into the environment. That's an insult to your portering staff having to move these big barreling cylinders and there's occupational health risk. It's possibly a leak um, that's not being picked up by the ventilation. Maybe it's because it might be at the narrow where it's a corridor valve, you know, so some passerby is constantly who's, you know, a porter and stuff. It's always the band twos, the band threes, the lowest paid getting the, the hyperexposure, whereas your clinical staff are all protected because they've got great ventilation, right? So there's a little bit of a cheek to all of this. And I realize there's a little bit of underinvestment in planned preventative maintenance, infrastructure, and the irony was it was the desflurane um you know the, the declining use um that um that drew, drew my attention but also then i quickly realized that the data gaps so the way we use nitrous oxide was the problem nitrous oxide there's many stakeholders involved and that was half the problem so pharmacy doesn't actually gain sight of this it's remotely received it's remotely installed several there's several many many players involved in supply and maintenance of nitrous oxide and then there's this also this under investment in that supply so that supply so the under in training the under investment in making sure there is enough of these staff on the ground to look after these systems and under appreciation of plan preventative maintenance by clinical staff themselves so like Allowing the opportunity to go into theatres, that's all changed now. I think with the nitrous oxide project, you know, I think we're and also with COVID, so um, so that happened. I was able to be able to do the analysis, able to improve the data streams that were coming in. I realized I needed to get the um, the medical supplier data, but then also um, delineating a way we can we can do this. One of the key themes I said, well, anesthetist, you need to articulate your clinical use. I don't mean hazard a guess. I mean, actually quantify it. Um, because they were going, yeah, yeah, I, I use loads. I use loads. And I go, well, prove it, prove it, right? So, um, so that, was, that was a bit challenging, to be honest with you. I think they were kind of a little bit shirky that I was asking. But then I think they realized after I proved on the first site, because it was a very, I, I spotted straight away that that was lost because they didn't have a, a, a maternity unit. They didn't have pediatrics. So why were they going through so much nitrous oxide? So it was kind of like, uh, it, I, I went there first because I knew it would be an easy win, and once I proved that, I could prove it across the other sites very quickly. So um yeah, so that that was essentially it. Amazing. the Desi- of increasing- Amazing. So it's oh. almost like
0: Esplorade was the canary, was the canary, hey, that led you to yeah, the no, night. It was, but, it,
3: but it's going back to Virginia's point on behaviours. So, and um I think that was that was a t- for me. I mean, I. Uh, from a, for, I take a health economics perspective as well. So for me, um, as a pharmacist, I was quite keen for them to stop using desflurane because it was, in pr- practical terms, it was four times more expensive. My view is that you need to have a blend or a mix of um, anesthetic tools available. Um, and Tiva is one, but it's not the only one. And you don't, wouldn't Ever want to get rid of volatile? Uh, at least until something amazing comes along. That's so amazing, um, you know. We've got to keep our minds open because what you want you want to keep that ca- a mix of tools available. Because uh, as soon as you sacrifice one, you, you you risk you risk the opportunities of care that you're giving your patients. You may not have an opportunity to get a line in, and you do need the gas. So I think yeah. that's really important. And Tiva, I also have concerns around Tiva around echotoxicity. Um, and that's something and I mean, I know that's not Julia's area, but it's 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 an area that I am interested in and it's an area that's poorly understood. And I think cautionary principles do apply. So uh, my, I know you're asking a message, but uh, uh, the clear message is don't be wasteful. And nitrous oxide has been an example of waste and and poor care and poor investment in infrastructure so um I'll come back to that later sorry carry on sorry ask another question I think
0: um no I think that point that you make about not sort of banning something and then you've that whole area of therapeutics is now not available for your patients and I think a lot of the anaesthetists who have been really cranky about ban the des Mm. have been really annoyed because they feel imposed upon and in their clinical environment, they need the nitrous to help induce a paediatric. Or they have patients with no veins and they have to do a gas induction. And they find that they're really being pushed and pulled around um, and sort of they're worried that life cycle analysis of propofol hasn't entirely been done. And yet we say that this is one, one thing's great and one thing's no good.
3: Yeah. so I think I think just just to bear in mind so we we we've we we move through drugs so there's many volatiles out there it, it, I'm old enough to remember halothane, all right and you ask 10 <laughs> yeah, I, you know you all you ask you ask t- you know you ask 10 anesthetists their opinions you'll get get 11 answers okay so let's keep that in mind so I'm not attached to deathfluine okay romantically or anything I haven't got any strong passion about it as an agent. I know I'll see a lot of hyperbole from my anesthetists. I honestly ignore it because I, I, you know, I think we we just need a straightforward HTA assessment of any drugs. They just strip away your emotions. And you know, I'm it's I'm not convinced of as as, a, as an agent. There was a lot of campaigning around it. So that's that's a separate argument. But, um, but, but I do, I do, I do like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm partial to, I'm a pharmacist. I'm partial towards SIVO and ISO it's cheaper and I've got yeah. other systems I need to maintain and other drugs I need to get plump out. Um, but at the same time, I'm concerned like sugar gamma has a huge toxic, you know, huge, huge environmental, but it's a really great drug, right? Mm. It's. When you want to do reversal over near stigma, it is the drug you want to go for. You've got an obese patient, you've got a problem, you want to grab that sugar gammaDEX and you want to get it in there, but it has a huge ecotoxic profile. I haven't gone and say ban sugar damadex, have I? I have not said that, but I think we need to have those conversations and they're really uncomfortable. Um, and we need to have them. So, um, you know, I mean, I'd, I mean, on uh, you know, it's a really expensive drug, so. I could say, "Oh, I don't want you to use it," but actually, no, I want you to get that patient up and out. I don't want him to go to ICU. I want him up and out, right? So, um, sure. I think it's just about measuring it. But you know, does friend to me as a as a pharmacist, you, you can't convince me that it's better than SIBO and Iso. You know, you can't convince me. But we'll see. But we'll take that away. We'll give it to the HTA and see see what they have to say about that. You know. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you
0: so much, all three of you, for this wonderful chat. Very quickly, I'm going to put each of you on the spot. I'm an anaesthetist going to work now. What do you want me give me one thing I can do to help the planet? Dame Julia, go. One thing.
1: <laughs> um, maybe walk, ride, or take public transport. Come on! <laughs> oh God, I, could I, also work. Also, I could also add, think about where in your hospital you could plant a tree.
0: Okay, walk, plant a tree. Great. Virginia.
2: I would say engage in research I think I think there's still a lot that we don't know so I think the best thing that we can do is engage in research and find out what is really the most sustainable thing to do.
0: Knowledge is power. Alafia, what's one thing I can do today when I get on my way to work
3: (laughs) to help (laughs) the planet tell me. Yeah no I think the most important thing is to stay calm I know that sounds really really difficult in this day and age and remember that when you go to work in a hospital you're really part of a, a complex um i i think the most complex social enterprise you can imagine right um and if there are changes you want to make start talking to people start understanding who they are what their pressures are what makes them exhausted to come in and um really i think for me active travel um as julia mentioned should really service the most vulnerable in your hospital so think about, you know, why are they not catching? Um, why are they not riding a bike? So you'll you'll be a classic, a bit of a, a, the person riding a bike will be a bloke, a consultant. He's not scared of the traffic. He's not scared of being knocked over. He's not scared, right? So yeah. you need to work out what those fears are for the more vulnerable members of your cohort. And that's not necessarily a surgical team or you're an anesthetic team. It could be the mm-hmm. band two, band three um, woman who's going off to pick up three kids. You know, so you need to think about, that those and they that they actually make up the bulk of your poverty, females, and lower uh, lower paid staff make the bulk of the hospital. So think about your community as a whole. Um, I Beautiful. know that's a big ask, but um, and I know it's easy to sort of you know just hold on tight. But there's a lot of there's a lot of people who work in a hospital, um, and they need they need. Need your
0: attention. You. So, I've got I'm walking to work, I'm planting a tree when I get there, I'm engaging in research and I'm keeping calm and I'm thinking about everyone in my workplace. So, we're going to leave that there. Thank you so much. I could talk with you three beautiful humans all day. Um, for everyone listening, that's just been fascinating. Uh, you can read all of these three papers. Uh, they're free for free to download, free forever, and all of the rest of the papers in the special uh, environment edition of Anesthesia Journal. Thank you so much.
3: The Anesthesia Podcast.